We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Checking out the Deep Platinum Mask podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Mark, who is also known as the hero of mime, if you check out his TikTok or Instagram page. And he's actually a local and kind of known through other states as a Renaissance street performer, as well as ocarina musician. Um, this was kind of a conversation that popped off, was able to kind of see him on a few local DFW articles and really wanted to kind of reach out. I've had like, uh, you know, people of different types of uh, music and acting, but never really had anyone um, that could speak on kind of the Renaissance festivals. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to thank you again, Mark, for being able to come on today and uh, really just kind of be able to talk about your performances. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. For sure. Well, I guess I wanted to kind of first ask, um, you know, specifically, uh, I was very interested if you were like born and raised in the DFW area or like where'd you grow up in? So in Colorado. Um, I was born in Denver and I grew up in Colorado Springs. Um, I moved to DFW about six years ago. I moved to, uh, to well, actually I moved to uh, Waco, Texas and then moved to Dallas um, shortly after. And are you still like um, you still in Dallas right now, or do you move around a lot when it comes to this type of work? Oh. So I have to move around a lot for this type of work. Um, so like right now, I'm physically in Colorado. I mean, that's because the Colorado Renaissance Festival opens in about a week and a half. Um, and so I'll be performing up here. Uh, but I am based out of Dallas. So whenever I'm not at a festival, I return to Dallas. That's where I currently live but i travel more time out of the year than not so i was very curious on like um kind of like the upbringing that you had um specifically coming into this were you like when it came to renaissance festivals like growing up like were you like a huge history buff or you know were you like into that type of uh work Sure. Um, I was really into theater in high school and was looking for opportunities uh, once I graduated to, um, you know, stretch my acting wings. I did. I uh, went to college for English, so I also had um, sort of uh, other interests competing with my Renaissance work. But I happened to land a role at the Colorado Renaissance Festival. It's where I got started. And I loved the Renaissance Festival ever since I was a kid. I had first gone to the Colorado Ren Fair when I was 12 years old. And I'd been attending just as a fan ever since. And so when I uh, saw they had auditions, I thought that would be really fun and be good for being able to do acting and performing. And so I auditioned then and landed my role that year. You mentioned like, um, you know, being an English major and kind of coming from like the theater side, were you um, like specifically only doing Renaissance festivals or were you doing like any type of, I guess, like um, traditional theater work? 
I was doing some traditional theater work, and I did do a little bit of it um, here and there, but I honestly uh, just really fell in love with the Renaissance performing. And so as soon as I got that first role uh, at the Ren Fair, I really geared my acting life toward uh, Renaissance work. And uh, it, I didn't launch into it full time right away, but over the course of several years of working at the Colorado Fair, that's when I started to branch out to other festivals and then go to festival work full time. So I'm curious on that, like first, um, I guess your first time at the Colorado Renaissance Festival or Renaissance Fair. So like, what is, I guess, starting off, what is the application process like? Do you know, I guess, what type of character you're applying for? Or is it kind of, you submit an application, they tell you maybe stuff you're good for? So it actually is going to depend on a few things. The main thing it's going to depend on is what fair you're applying to. Of course, you know, it's going to vary by fair, but it also is going to depend on sort of what type of position you're applying for. At Renaissance festivals, if you're going to work for the festival and not work for one of the vendors, um, you really have a few options as to what you're going to be doing. They typically have workers that work, uh, you know, our, our hourly workers that work like the front gate, work the food, things like that. And then you have the performers and the performers are really divided into two sections. There's what are called the national performers or the national acts or at some fairs that's just called the entertainment. And the entertainment are typically professionals who do this for a living. They travel across the country and they work at uh, the festivals full time for a living. Um, then you also will have the uh, cast. And the cast is sort of a local position, which is really intended to be more performing specific and is much more geared toward people who don't do it for a living and are much more and live locally, like they're from Colorado. So when I auditioned for the Colorado Renaissance Festival, I was auditioning to be on their cast. And so that process was just like any other theater audition where I showed up with an acting resume and uh, I didn't really have an idea of the character I wanted to be, but they were open to ideas on characters and you sort of work with them once the audition happens on how you want that to go. And you mentioned like that comparison between like cast versus like national actors that go from one festival to another. So like making that transition, is it just you build a lot of brand recognition in one and like another festival notice you, or do you still have to, I guess, rigorously apply to like other festivals? Above, um, you definitely do need to work on building a brand. That's important. Having some sort of having an act and not just a character, having some sort of a, a collective, this is what I can bring to your festival. And then when you apply to other festivals besides, uh, so when I apply to other festivals besides Colorado, I send them, a, it's really just an email template that I send with a full a uh, package of uh, recordings of my performance, photos of my performance, a description of what I do, which fairs I've performed at, and so forth. So it is like an application, but it's a little more informal. Um, it's really more of a proposal is what we call them. And uh, depending on how desperate you are is really how rigorous the applications go. If you, you, know, you have a lot of festival options that like you, then you aren't going to need to send out as many. And sometimes you have a slow season where you do send out a whole bunch. Um, 
but I don't apply as cast to any other festivals, both because I'm not local and because the cast positions are local. They usually, um, the pay is not as high because they're not considering that you do it for a living. They're considering you do it for fun. And so um, being recognized as a national act is not just important. I would say it's necessary if you want to be a performer full time. You're touching up on like some of the pay related to um, like national act and with the overall cast. So what is that breakdown? Because I remember seeing like uh, you had a video about um, there being tip systems. Is it Mm -hmm. um, like tip based or is it, you know, an hourly based? How does it go? So any performer who does this for a living will um, have a day rate. They're paid per day. Um, so if the festival's for open for 16 days, which is most of the festivals that I do are, um, when I send them a proposal, I say, I need this amount of money per day. And that's going to vary by fare, um, depending on what I think the fair's budget is and depending on what the fair tells me. Sometimes the fair will say, no, we'll, you know, we'll give you this right. And it's a negotiation process. Um, different fairs have different rules on tipping. It, it really varies across the country. Um, there are some fairs that don't allow it at all and some fairs that encourage it. There's some fairs that don't pay a day rate at all and only allow you to collect tips. And so you can really find any version of that. And really the only thing you got to settle on is where you want to be and what you're willing to accept. And have you been personally in like situations that were like 100% tip based? And like, if so, did you have any days that were extremely successful or any days that, um, you know, had very limited tips? So the only festival I've ever worked at where I worked for only tips, um, and this was because I did it for as a guest position. Um, I, you know, I think it's important as a performer to know what you're worth. And so I don't, frankly, I don't work for free. Um, You know, I bring quality performance to the festivals I work for. And so, uh, you know, I, and I do this for a living. And so uh, it's important to me that uh, performers are paid for the work that they do. Um, and because tips are wildly unpredictable, it's important not to base your income off of it. Uh, however, I once in a while, I will go perform for a festival just for tips. And that's generally if it's a fair, I am interested in performing for full time later. And I would like to give them a sample of what I do. Um, or it's because I don't have time to work a full festival. I know I can't commit to the whole run of a full festival and I would still like to make an appearance there either because I enjoy it or because I have fans who want to see me. And so then sometimes I'll talk with the festival and I'll agree to work for free because it's one weekend or one day or something like that. And then I'll just take tips. So in that kind of application process, um, when they accept you, they agree to your um, day rate, is it, do you like choose specifically on like where you're going to be within the festival, like location wise, or um, do they tell you or does it move around a lot? Question. Um, That's going to depend highly on your act. But with my act, I'm a street character. Um, Unless I perform, I I also am a a merman performer. So sometimes that does determine where I'm going to sit because I'm not very mobile. But when I'm playing Ocarina as a street character, which is the most common thing that I do, um, I typically am a wandering musician. So I don't usually have a setup, a particular spot I play. I certainly don't have a stage show. Um, so I, I generally wander a little bit at the Colorado Renaissance Festival. 
Um, I definitely wander throughout the day at um, some festivals. If there's a great spot for me to be, I will sometimes just not move. I'll sometimes, so my, one of my favorite festivals is the St. Louis festival. And there's this lovely little bridge um, at the St. Louis fair that uh, crosses just from one part of the fair to the other. It's a nice stone bridge that's in the shade and I love playing there. It allows my sound to kind of filter throughout the woods and it's just a very nice spot. And so I tend to stay there just because I like it there, but I wasn't really assigned there. Um, I, that's the sort of thing. If you're going to be assigned places or if you're going to be assigned to move around that you work out during the contracting process, but it's all a negotiation and it really just depends on what the fair needs, what I need and, um, what we can uh, agree on. You're mentioning like, um, what, one of the locations you enjoy has like a lot of shade, I remember seeing that kind of with the Scarborough Fair, um, or it seems like a lot of festivals, they tend to be, uh, can be around May or, you know, sometime in the summer had like, has like crazy summer weather or just high heat ever been like an issue when it came to like guests or staff at that type of event? It's really important to stay hydrated at any Renaissance festival. They do get unbelievably hot during the summer fairs. Um, both Scarborough and the Colorado Renaissance Festival um, frequently have staff or um, guests, uh, you know, succumb, get heat stroke or come close to getting heat stroke because they don't take care of themselves. They're very sunny, hot events. Um, in Colorado, it's very high altitude. And so, and people, you know, do a lot of drinking. And so it's re uh, really, really important to stay hydrated. And uh, especially because lots of people will wear costumes that are not very good in the weather uh, because they're very fancy, they're velvet, very heavy outfits. And so a lot of people aren't good at regulating their water intake. And that is the reason they will go down. Uh, so at the Colorado Renaissance Festival, when you start as cast, they do a whole lecture on water. And that has been a lifesaver for me at some of my hotter festivals, because uh, the things I learned during that lecture, I have taken to heart and I employ every single day that I work at the warmer fairs. And speaking of like warmer fairs, I remembered seeing, um, you know, you do uh, kind of a lot of your photos with um, your Link character. I was curious on, you ha also have like the Merman character. Was that like because of the whole heat thing or wh where did that like um, new character come from? I have always been a mermaid and merman enthusiast. I love uh, mermen and mermaids and those properties. I love the ocean. And so I had always wanted to have a mermaid or merman character. And I actually offer um, several characters. I, I like to think of my brand as a fantasy ensemble where if you need a fantasy character, whether it's an elf, a fairy or a mermaid, I can provide it to the festival. And so um, the Merman definitely did not launch out of being too hot or anything like that. It really was more that I have a passion for uh, the character. Um, and I thought it would be really fun to perform in that capacity. So when I created my Merman character, um, his name is Kylochen. Uh, and uh, when I created him, I wanted to uh, create some sort of uh, character to uh, bring mermen, especially into festivals, mermaids, you know, women really dominate the the mermaiding performing industry. And I think it's really important to provide, uh, I think it's really important to provide the representation of males in fantasy 
um, because a lot of little boys are told when they're kids that they can't be mermaids, that they can't be fairies, and they, you know, they can't participate in that sort of thing. And so I think it's really important to bring fairies and, that are boys and bring mermen to festivals so that um, boys and girls alike and, uh, uh, you know, children of all spectrums of gender get to enjoy the, the festival and get to enjoy being part of that, that magic. When you talk about like, I guess that importance of inclusion um, that all people are involved, I remember seeing something, is it, are you uh, in depth with ACL, uh, ASL? I am. Um, I, I would say I'm in depth. I am not fluent. Um, I speak a, a decent amount of ASL. It gets me through a festival day. It's enough to do short interactions with um, hearing impaired or nonverbal uh, guests at the Renaissance festivals. And it's something I'm very proud of to include in my, in my acts um, as it started a little bit as link because link is a silent character and uh, I wanted a way to communicate. And I thought ASL would both be a good way to communicate silently and also bring accessibility to the festivals. And because uh, the deaf and mute guests that I've interacted with at the festivals have appreciated that so much, I expanded that and have just used it in all of my performances. So now no matter what character I do, I always have the ASL ability and incorporate it heavily into my characters so that um, it can be accessible. Because let me tell you, there is no greater feeling than being the one performer that a deaf uh, guests at a festival gets to interact with and they tell you, you are the only person who has spoken to me the entire day. That ability is so special and so important for them. And so I'm really proud to be able to uh, to do that. And I continually work to improve my ASL skills so that I'll be better at it. On those like type of characters you offer, and you're kind of talking about like it being an onslaught of these different fantasy characters that you can present have you like gotten a lot of offers outside of like um, different fairs and festivals? Like, I guess to do things like birthday parties. A lot of people asking. Um, unfortunately, it makes birthday parties are hard to schedule for me because my weekends are almost always booked. So, because I'm working Renaissance festivals pretty much full time, I don't get a lot of birthday party availability because. I don't really have availability on the weekends. And, you know, most people book birthday parties on the weekends. Uh, I do take time off on occasion, but then, of course, the issue becomes what state I'm in. Uh, I've had lots of birthday parties requests in Colorado specifically. And every time they do that, I have to tell them, listen, you know, I would love to perform with you. But even on the off chance that it's not on a weekend, I am going to be in Texas. And so you would have to, you know, pay me enough that it, it justifies flying out to Colorado or wherever it happens to be. So I am absolutely and always open to birthday parties. I love doing birthday parties. In fact, I've uh, done a handful in my time uh, as various characters and um, I'm always open to it and always very excited to do it. But uh, unfortunately, it becomes a little bit impractical with the um, constant moving around and the fact that my weekends tend to be pretty booked. With like the booked weekends and that type of scheduling. So what's like, I guess, the most busy and the least busy months um, when it comes to, I guess, like festivals and fairs in the countries or, or is it like enough where it's like um, you can always have like a packed weekend um, any time of the year? I would say generally it is possible to have a full year. 
And the way you do that is you would have to find, uh, th there's no big festivals in January. There are several small ones. And so you just got to find some smaller ones that are shorter to fill up January. Once you get to February and March, you hit, uh, there are only three big festivals, and those are the Arizona Renaissance Festival, the Bay Area Renaissance Festival, and the Florida Renaissance Festival. Um, and that's that's it. It's those three. And so you need to get into one of those three if you want to work during that time. Now, there's other smaller fairs opening. Um, a fair in Texas uh, called Avalon Fair um, has been around somewhat recently for the past couple of years, and they're all of April. So um, you know, there are smaller ones starting to open. The Kerrville Renaissance Festival in Texas opened uh, a couple years ago, and now they're a three-weekend fair. So it's not that there isn't work. There always is. But if you're wanting a permanent long-term festival, those three are your options. Once you hit the spring, you have your options start to become more plentiful. Uh, you get festivals like Sherwood and Scarborough and Georgia and the Oklahoma Renaissance Festival all are open during that time. And there's a couple on the East Coast during that time, too. Uh, as you hit the summer, it gets a little too hot in most of the country. And so you actually have fewer than you would expect. The main ones end up being Kentucky, Colorado and uh, Bristol, which is up in Wisconsin, I believe. Um after the summer happens is the really busy season for all run fairs. August, September, October is the busiest by far. Uh, I've lost track of how many festivals there are, but there's at least eight or nine big two-month festivals that are open during the fall. And so there's lots and lots of festivals across the country. There, You should have no trouble you know finding fairs to work at during that time and then as it gets colder it gets slows down a little bit uh but there's festivals generally through october november and then once you hit christmas time there aren't a lot of fairs open because people are busy with christmas so um generally most uh, renaissance festival performers that i know take that time off i certainly do because i'm happy to have a break uh but i'm sure there are smaller fairs if you looked for them and are like fairs and festivals, I mean, is it similar to like, is there a reason that they just close down and like, I guess like don't pick up and like move to a different location or I guess stay um, open longer in the year? So they're all independently owned and the, or, or most of them are, I should say, they're not all independently owned, but most of them are independently owned. So the idea that it's like a carnival where uh, they all go to one place and then they all pick up and move to the next place is is not an accurate view of Ren Fairs. It's actually a really common misconception is that the Ren Fair is one entity that goes from place to place to place. Um, what it actually is, is that the Renaissance festivals are each locally owned for a certain amount of the uh, for certain places. So, for example, the Colorado Renaissance Festival is owned by one family, and they also own the Pittsburgh Renaissance Festival, but they only have those two. They don't have any others. And so uh, they are only open during those times of the year, uh, mainly depending on weather. But the other thing is, for the amount of time your festival's open, you also have to pay your performers and all of your employees. And so there's uh, sort of a big question of demand that comes by only opening your fair for two months, you only have the operating cost of two months. And I imagine that you get essentially what is a year's demand from your customer base smushed into those two months. So people that would be like, well, I'll go in January sometime when it's cold. They can't go in January, so they go in July when it's open. Um, 
so that's just a guess. I don't really know. I've never run a Renaissance Festival. Uh, but the other thing I can say is that there's only so many Renaissance Festival performers out there. And there's only so many good Renaissance for performers out there, to be quite frank. And uh, those people can have to book their year. And so if someone's at Scarborough and Colorado decides they want to start opening earlier and conflicting with Scarborough, that performer is going to have to decide which fair they like more. And that's true of every fair that conflicts ever. And every performer has their own schedule and has to fit in what fairs they want where they want. But if, you know, there are, it's common for fairs to start expanding as they get more popular and as they, they start adding weekends. The St. Louis Fair started as a four weekend fair and now they're a six weekend fair and they're looking to be a seven weekend fair. But the more you expand, the more you increase your uh, potential to conflict with another festival. And then you make performers start choosing where they're going to go. And frankly, you also make your patrons start choosing where they're going to go. I know patrons who also travel around the country going to festivals from place to place. And when they do that, you know, they also have to decide which fairs are going to fit in their schedule. And so sometimes they'll skip one because it's not in the cards, depending on uh, when it's open. And when it comes to, you're kind of saying like with the patrons and the actors and uh, everyone and performers as well, kind of traveling from um, one fair to the next, I was kind of wondering like when it comes to that traveling aspect, is it, do you normally have to like kind of stay in your car? Like when it comes to being um, at that fair or do you figure out like an Airbnb situation? Uh, that really depends on the performer. I can, of course, tell you what I do, and I know some friends who do it differently. I have one friend who's a performer who absolutely refuses to do anything but Airbnb. She always gets an Airbnb, and that's how she does it at every fair she goes to. Um, and uh, there's everything in between. So I know performers and uh, other workers who do the Ren Fair circuit who aren't performers but like work for vendors or do other things. Um, who stay in tents and they camp. They they really rough it where they just camp in a tent and they go from place to place. They'll stay in their car and or their tent and that's what they do. Um, I'm a little more bougie than that. I can't uh, rough it quite that much. So um, where I can, when I'm in Colorado, my family, like I said, I grew up here. And so I stay with my family. That's where I'm at now is in my family's house, uh, which is nice to be in an actual home. Uh, when I'm at fairs where I'm not, uh, you know, at ho- either in Dallas at home or here in Colorado, I stay in a, a travel trailer that I have. Um, I purchased it expressly for this work and um, I take it with me wherever I go. So I get to live in that for those months that I'm at the festival. And most festivals, not all, but many have campsites. And so you can camp right on the festival grounds if they do. And uh, typically when I perform at a festival, I include that in my contract. Uh, that I need space to be able to camp. And if the fair doesn't have a campsite, which I've had to deal with a couple times, then I'll resort to an Airbnb of some kind. And when you bring your own like trailer and you including the contract of wanting it kind of on that fairground site. So like, uh, do you have to provide um, your own type of like apparel or costume? And like, do you kind of leave the trailer like already in character? I wouldn't say I leave the trailer in character. The campsite's sort of, you know, a backstage for every festival. And so, um, you know, you're really not in character till the fair opens. And any performer for Ren Fair uh, has to be on site before the fair opens anyway. So I wouldn't say that's accurate. But as far as providing your costume, if you're a national act, these fairs consider you to be 
a professional. And so they, you know, they aren't going to provide you anything really. Um, you know, you're bringing this performance to the table. This is your gig and your deal. And so you should already have everything you need to show up at the festival and start performing and be able to be entertaining for the uh, for the patrons. Now, if you're on cast at a festival, that's sort of a difference is that cast, again, is a local position and is not really intended for people who do this for a living. And so frequently, if you're cast at a festival, you'll get lots of, of uh, fairs that are able to help you out on costuming and figure out what you're going to do. But when you're cast, you're a villager, you know, you're a piece of the festival ambiance, but you're not a, an attraction. Um, you're, you're really more there to help make the festival feel alive, but you are not there bringing in guests as a performer. And so there's sort of a distinction there on when you're going to need to be a professional versus if you're cast, when you are really there more as part of the background. I was curious on, is it true that you were in the past or currently are like an attorney? Uh, that Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was kind of, because I know you're kind of mentioning on, you know, doing this full time. I was kind of wondering, like, uh, do you still do the attorney work or were you able to transition to this full time? I do. Um, so basically what happened is I actually did Ren Fairs before I went to law school and I thought law school would be fun. So I decided to try it out. And so I did. I took a break from, not a total break from festivals. I was still doing them um, in, during my summers, but I was only doing one festival per year during that time because of, uh, because of that. And, uh, but when I finished law school, I was, I thought to myself that I really wanted to be able to continue working in the field of law, both because frankly, it pays a lot better than Ren Fair work and because, uh, because I enjoyed it and I found it intellectually stimulating. And I also wanted to continue pursuing the job that I love, which is performing. And so I was like, well, I don't see why I can't do both. And so it took some time, but I eventually was able to land uh, a lawyer job where I work remotely. And uh, actually, I, even though COVID brought many horrible things to our lives, it was a blessing for me and that it made remote work a lot more possible. And so now I work remotely as a full-time attorney and on the weekends, I continue working at the Renaissance Festivals. And has it always been like easy as far as being able to kind of do that or like to keep those two lives like separate from each other as far as, I guess, like balancing those two type of roles? To be pretty vigilant at not letting my law work overtake my festival work. Um, the work-life balance is something that's really important to me. And so I've had to work hard to ensure that when I take uh, legal work that I am not overburdening myself, I would say, um, so that it does not bleed over onto the weekends. Um, but as long as you maintain those those boundaries, it's it's perfectly doable. It is working a lot though. When I'm at a festival right now, I work seven days a week, and that is that is quite a bit. So um, it does get a little overwhelming at times just because I work so much at a time when the festivals are on. So sometimes I step back from a festival that I would normally do. Since I'm not financially dependent on doing a fair at a particular time, I get to be a little pickier at doing the fairs that I like instead of just the fairs that will pay me. And um, so, you know, it's all a balance. Sometimes I'm really busy and sometimes I'm really slow and it just varies. 
When it comes to like those uh, types of job opportunities, I, you're kind of like saying kind of the beginning that there is competition when it comes to going from the cast to trying to become a national actor or being able to do this uh, full time. Are there like, I guess, other opportunities when it comes to like, I guess, management or administration or uh, like within these type of festivals? It's pretty rare because you're talking about, you know, maybe 50 festivals across the country. So when a position opens up, you're talking about, you know, these positions don't open up that often. Positions for so basically the basic structure of a Renaissance Festival management typically of a bigger festival is that you have the owners who, you know, don't really do the managing. They really just own it. And then they'll have operations managers and then the operations manager will be in charge of the entertainment director, the crafts coordinator. Sometimes there's a campground coordinator and sometimes you have some other um, coordinators um, uh, depending on how big your fair is and how many different types of things you've got. Underneath the entertainment director will be the cast director. And then underneath the cast director, they might have smaller managers depending on um, your fare. And so uh, the those positions, you know, there's just not that many of them. You're talking about maybe seven-ish people in the management structure of the whole festival. And so one of those positions does not open often. And when it does, there's definitely a lot of interest because they're kind of a big deal. Um, so... I would say there is opportunity to grow uh, if you want to get into the management side of festivals, but you rarely do it from a performance job. You more often do that from being a booth manager of some kind or owning a smaller, if you own a smaller festival, you might uh, become the director of a larger festival or something like that. Um, really the only job I know that performers end up getting that is in management is management of the entertainment, which, you know, makes lots of sense. Um, but again, those jobs are pr pretty few and far between. So though they exist, they uh, don't come up often. And specifically um, in your type of characters, uh, specifically in the Link character, uh, did like playing Ocarina, did that come like before the character or were you doing that like later on? I'm one of the only people on the planet that knew what ocarinas were before I was at all interested in uh, Zelda. So um, I I learned to play the ocarina because my friend played it and I thought it was neat and I just wanted to learn an instrument and I thought, well, that one seems cool. Why not? And so I learned it. I practiced it really hard and I got very good at it. And that was all before I was at all. I mean, I knew what The Legend of Zelda was, but I was not at all part of that community. I didn't play the games. I, I didn't do any of that. I only became interested uh, in The Legend of Zelda because I love the ocarina so much. And so um, the, the two often go hand in hand, but the instrument is much older than the games. Uh, it's an instrument that was invented in like the 1100s. Uh, so, you know, a long, long time ago. And uh, it's just one that I love to play. And so it sort of all came together for me. Um, and to be able to perform as an elf at a Renaissance festival, playing the ocarina brought all that together really, really nicely. And so um, that's really how I got into it. But I'm one of the only people who, who can say that because almost everyone believes that the ocarina was invented by Zelda. And that's definitely not true. <laughs> And for anyone that doesn't know, like, I guess, what's the difficulty when it comes to like training on the ocarina? Is it 
like how long did it take you to be able to do like some of the songs that you currently do? I would say I've been I played the ocarina for about three years before I was proficient, where I was really good and could pick up songs pretty quickly. Um, and nowadays, if I want to learn a song, I can learn it within a couple of days. Um, it's uh, so I wouldn't say it's a terribly difficult instrument. But I also will say that I play by ear and the ocarina is a very ear based instrument because it's a chromatic instrument. So you can play it in any key, uh, but you have to be able to transpose those fingerings to the different keys that you're playing. And that is the really hard part. Playing in C when your ocarina is tuned to C is not hard at all. And it's just like a recorder in a lot of ways. Like you can play a lot of different things without too much difficulty. If you can play a recorder, if you can play piano, even you can play ocarina, but learning to be able to transpose the ocarina fingerings to different keys, that is something that only really experienced ocarina players can do. And so uh, that took me uh, again uh, from two to three years, I would say to become proficient to where I am today. And now I've been playing the ocarina for about eight years. And so I have uh, quite a bit of experience with it. And we like after eight years, I remembered seeing like on, I think it was like on one of your TikTok shout outs of like trying to uh, put together your first album when it comes to like Ocarina music. So I was wondering on like, uh, you know, how that's currently going and um, like the type of artists that you're collaborating with. Cause I, you know, I definitely, with that type of music, I was very curious on like what type of music like you can, sure. I guess, mix it with. Yeah, so I'm working on it right now. Um, I appreciate you mentioning it. It's uh, it's in progress. My hope is to have it ready and finished by the time the St. Louis Renaissance Festival opens in September so that I'll have it available for people to get there. Um, and it's uh, it's been a process. I only play the ocarina. I don't know any other instruments. And I don't even read music that well. So I'm not great at like composing or anything like that. So I have been reaching out to people online who do uh, gigs and make backtracks for me. And I've also been working with a couple other musicians that I know who play things like violin and guitar. Um, so it, it varies by song. I have one song that's being accompanied by a harp that's really sweet. And I have uh, a guy who's a violinist who's working on um, some stuff with me right now. So I'm looking to have a, a pretty big variety of music, but it's all going to be very renaissance -y. It's all going to be very acoustic and that sort of thing. Um, and so it, it's definitely a work in progress, but it's going well. And, you know, I was very curious, like, would that be, um, I guess that type of music, would that be something that you would want to play? I know you said it was very medieval timesy, but like, um, I guess try to play it outside of the fairs and festivals at like different venues. Would if people asked me to, but it's not something I've ever sought out. Um, I would always perform. I, you know, I love performing. I have no issue of where I perform, but it's definitely a very unique sound. And so it's not something that uh, anyone has ever asked me to do. But, you know, if if someone reached out and said, hey, we'd like you to come perform at our venue, I would totally do it. Um, but, you know, it's just sort of one of those things that Renaissance performing and uh, live band and gig performing don't mix that often. And so it's uh, it's not that they don't mix. I do know some Ren Fair performers who do both, but uh, it's never something that's come across my desk, as it were. For sure, man. Well, I guess like for really just kind of wrap everything up, I really wanted to just ask you, 
you know, was there anything else that you're kind of looking forward to moving forward, um, whether it's with the Renaissance festivals, um, with the fairs, with any other projects um, like your music? Sure. Um, I'm really excited about the album, I would say, is my big ticket item that I am working on. I have had quite a few people at fairs ask me if I sold a CD, and I've always wanted to be able to provide that, but it, I just never had bothered. Um, and so I finally decided that this would be the year that it would be fun to do it. And so I'm really excited to get that done. I'm also really excited because um, Kai Lachan is my merman is finally getting a little more uh, traction. And uh, I have wanted him to I've wanted to perform him more and more um, to get him out there for you know, the reasons we already discussed. And so I have been booking more gigs as my merman, and that has been really exciting. I'm incredibly grateful to be able to perform as a street performer, but I also, you know, again, wanted to bring that representation to uh, the festivals in the mermaid community. And so I'm always eager to, to continue expanding that. And so I'm really pleased that he has been expanding and I'm hoping to continue to do that. So if you know anyone who wants a merman to perform for them, uh, you know, hit me up. <laughs> for sure. I'll definitely uh, keep my ear out and everything. Um, but honestly, wanted to just be able to thank you again, Mark. Um, honestly, like really the conversation was, uh, you know, definitely something I was uh, really looking forward to. I mean, kind of something like this with Renaissance fairs and festivals was not something I've been able to cover before, but you know, I, I thought you gave like really cool insight into it and, you know, also about kind of your background and everything that kind of led you on this journey, um, kind of like with the projects you mentioned um, on the music and acting side, uh, definitely seems like you have a lot of uh, cool things on your plate. So really just wanted to thank you again for being able to take out the time today and uh, yeah, just the interest on helping me out. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed being here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.